something no one ever says. For example, we want to hire someone who has a history of not being on time. Says no one ever. No one wants to hire that person. So we're going to modify that just a little bit tonight because I can, right? And we're going to go this way. Says no one but God. Says no one but God. And here are the statements. You're going to start, by the way, the more you know your Bibles, the more rewarding this next couple minutes are going to be. All right? So if you don't get the jokes or get the implication, you can't think of who we're talking about, Read your Bibles. You'll get it. All right, here you go. Uh, pick the elderly couple to have a baby and start a new nation. Says no one but God. Pick the woman who's had five husbands and is now living with a man to be alone with Jesus. Says no one but God. Pick the fisherman to share the truth. Says no one but God. Now, think about that one just a little bit more. You'll start to see the, ir- you'll start to see the irony in that statement, all right? Pick a terrorist to share God's peace to others. Can you think of who that might have been, right? Pick the denier to stand up for the truth. That is just cool. You guys hear that too? It's a tree frog in the the building? I'm freaking out. No, I'm kidding. I'm good. Pick the murderer to be the missionary. No one but God. Pick the skeptic to declare the impossible. Pick small-town nobodies to be the parents to the creator of the universe. Do you see the pattern of what, of what God does? And that's just, that's just a surface look at some of the personalities and the people God picked in Scripture. God keeps picking the weak and the unqualified instead of the strong and the skilled. And that's just like God. It's just like God to pick the weak. So here's my question for you. Why do we operate differently than that? Why do we Pick the strong, the talented, and the smart. I mean, picture yourself on that schoolyard playing kickball or dodgeball or whatever, and, and you're one of the captains, and you get to pick your team, and some poor sucker is going to be the last person chosen, right? That's how, how self-esteem problems for the rest of their lives, counseling ahead. But, but we would pick, what, the strong, the talented, the, and the smart kids. Why did we do that? Right? And, and you know what the answer is, because we want to win. We want, to, we want to increase the odds of victory, right? So we, we think, well, that person is going to be better than that, and that person's smarter than that, and that person's prettier. And so that's how we do everything in, 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 in the world. But God doesn't seem to care about the odds. It's like he was the first solo, right, Han Solo? You know, don't tell me the odds. Cause they, why? Because they're completely irrelevant to him. Completely irrelevant. God doesn't care about odds at, at all. Now, where does this show up in Scripture? Well, all over the place, but I'm going to take you to one of the most classic places. It's God's selection of David to be king. So here's what happened. The first king of Israel was was Saul. He was big and strong. He looked like he should be king. And he disobeyed God. And then God tells the prophet Samuel some very bad news. He says, Samuel, I want you to anoint one of Jesse's sons to become the next king and I want you to go do that now but I don't want to do it now because Saul's still king if he'll say where are you going and then I say well I'm going to go anoint a new king this is going to be awkward <laughs> and potentially life-threatening right so so he, he he said yeah I know I want you to do that so tell you what don't tell him you're doing that go to make a sacrifice and have a feast right and he goes okay I'll do that you know so so he goes to to Jesse now just we'll see how smart you are okay who knows where you had to go? What city was it? What town was it? Jesse. David. 
Son of David, city of David. Bethlehem, you're getting you Christmas addicts. Let's go. Get it out. All right, so he's going to Bethlehem, six miles from Jerusalem. Right? Okay, so when they arrived, I'm skipping some parts, but we're getting to the heart of it. When they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab. Now, Eliab was, was the oldest son of Jesse. And we're going to find out he had more than one son. He looked at one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. Why? Because he was bigger and taller than Saul. Because he, he looked like a linebacker for the Vikings. And we can say that now with pride. A few years ago, we couldn't. But now we can do to, like a linebacker image, right? Of, he's huge. He's a football player. He's, he's all man. And, and Samuel looks at him and goes, that's a guy that everybody will follow. Look at him. But the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or height, for I have rejected him. Well, what, he's not big enough? You must have somebody you really want. Because he goes, no, 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 no. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God is looking for something that, that goes beyond how big and strong and smart and talented we are. So then Jesse told his son, um, I, let's just call him Abe, um, <laughs> Abinadab. I'll go, go with that, all right? Abinadab, to step forward and walk in front of Samuel. Now, don't you feel like you're at the Miss American pageant all of a sudden? Samuel's sitting here. Would you walk by him? You know, and he walks by him. <laughs> and there's this moment, and Samuel's going, is it him, Lord? Is it him? Look at him. He's strong. He's big. He's, he's good looking. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen either. God says, not that guy either, right? Next, Jesse summoned Shemaiah. But Samuel said, neither is this the one the Lord has chosen. Well, there's three down. Right? In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. It's just this pageantry of one son after the next son. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these, but it's supposed to be one of your kids. Is this? He goes out and he goes, Samuel said, are, are these all the sons you have? And I'm thinking, seven's not enough. <laughs> there is still the youngest. In other words, there's one who hasn't reached maturity yet, one who I wouldn't even think of putting in front of you. There's still the youngest, Jesse replied, but... He's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats because that's what young teenagers do. That's what we got the kid doing. He's out there. We'd have to go out and get him. And, and Samuel said, well, send for him at once. We're not even going to sit down to eat until he arrives. We're going to stand right here, all of us, until you get that son right here in, in front of me. So Jesse sent for him, and we have no idea how long it took. And then when he shows up, the, the author says, he was dark and handsome with beautiful eyes. Why do we need to know that? It's, it's like, God, I don't get that part. I'm not even going to try to get any meaning out of that, except for I guess he had really nice eyes. But he probably wasn't the biggest, strongest person in the whole world. He probably reflects that picture I showed you, but a scrawny teenager, right? And the Lord said, this is the one. And I think Sam was going, really? This kid? Yeah, he's the one. Anoint him. So as David stood there among his brothers, right, pause for a moment there. If you're with brother, and they went out and got the skinny little kid, and they bring him back, and he's being anointed as a future king, what are you feeling? Oh, David, I was hoping to be him. <laughs> you remember Joseph and his brothers? If some of you, the, the tension between them I'm promising you there was that tension in them. And it comes out later on, but you're going to have to go read it for yourself. And I'll give you the, the address in a little bit where to look in your Bible. You'll see the tension between the brothers and David. From this moment on, I think the brothers were feeling a little insecure and a little uptight with David because he got picked. 
right? Which is kind of normal human stuff. So as he stood there among his brothers, as his brothers towered over him, Samuel took the flask of olive oil he had brought and anointed David with oil. God chooses the weakest one of all of them. He picks the weak one. And as the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon, and the Spirit of the Lord came powerfully upon David from that day on, and then Samuel returned to Ramah. So here's the only thing I want you to catch. God keeps picking the weak. And sometimes he does it in a dramatic way. This was a very dramatic story um, of how that all played out. We could have just had, and God chose David, but, but the author goes, no, I want you to see something. He's picking the weakest one, the unqualified one, instead of the strong one and the skilled one. He's picking the least likely to be king, to be king. Because that's just like God, to do that. But the question still comes up, well, so why? Why does God pick the weak? And I want to give you three answers or benefits, things I see that maybe it's not spelled out in Scripture like, right like this, but I'm telling you I think these are real benefits, real reasons why God picks the weak. The first one is when God picks the weak, it always provides clarity. Okay? Do you remember the fight between Goliath and David later on? Right? The giant Goliath and David. Do you remember who won that battle? Who was it? Right. That's going to have been a hint for you, right? If I would have <laughs> put that up there, right? Okay, that's a sucker question because it's the wrong answer you gave me. But I suckered you into it, so you're forgiven and you're still smart, okay? I want you to... Read with me what David said to Goliath right before he took his life. Okay? So David is out there with Goliath, and, and Goliath is making fun of David. What? You sent me, you know, what am I, a dog? You sent out this guy, this little kid, to take me, right? And, and David replies. Here's what it says. Verse 44, 1 Samuel 17. By the way, 1 Samuel 17, go back to those passages. You'll find out, you'll, you'll read the tension of the brothers in there, all right? David replied to the Philistine. Don't even call him Goliath. To the Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, and javelin. But I come to you with five rocks and a sling. Is that what he said? But I come to you in the name of the Lord. Right? I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies. It's not just me here. And God's armies of Israel, who you, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Today, the Lord will conquer you. The Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you. <laughs> right? I'm sorry, this is just in the Bible. You can go read it for yourself. I will kill you, and I will cut off your head. Right? This is war. This is not kickball. This is life and death. This is God being mocked in front of the world. This is the wild, wild west. This is not now. Right? I will kill you and I'll cut off your head. And then I will give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and the wild animals. And, and here it is. And the whole world will have clarity. The whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. That our God is the true God. And that you who mock that God are going to pay the price because God is going to conquer you. I'm just going to be a part of it. I'm going to kill you. Right? But, but I'm not winning the battle here. God is. God is perfect clarity. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord rescues his people. There's going to be great clarity. Everybody here is going to know that the Lord rescues his people and not with sword or spear or even sling. This is the Lord's battle. And he will give you to us. 
man. This, this young man steps up and understands it's not about him. He knows that he's not bringing much to the battle. It's God's battle. It's God's, it just provides clarity that the drama of choosing David to do that, who the armor wouldn't even fit if you go read the story. The whole point is he's too little, he's too small. No one else in the whole army will do this. But God chose David, and when David does it, he gives all the glory. In fact, he starts with that. I'm not even doing this. God's going to do this. And today you're going to know we're going to have great clarity because God picked the weak to do this. So years ago, Lori and I worked here for a summer. This is Camp Spofford in New Hampshire. It's a Christian camp, and I was the camp director of the, of the youth camp. And um, Lori and I kind of, she ran the girl side, I ran, I ran the man side kind of thing, the boy side. And it was a youth camp for kids. And it was a very interesting summer for us. And by the way, I think I've brought this up before, so some of you will remember uh, this story. But we had really good counselors and really good kids. They were from all over the place, including like inner city New York were coming up to this. And they were so fun. I loved their, the Brooklyn, man, it was fun, their accents. But one of the counselors we had, and by the way, I didn't get to hire the counselors. I just had to lead them, right? So one of the counselors we had, I never would have hired, right? In fact, I still wouldn't hire him. And I don't even know where he is. He, he wasn't mentally healthy. And he was, he, did quite, he didn't quite get summer camp. So when the kids came in, he's got all these eight-year-old boys. He goes, okay, I'm the general, you're the lieutenant, you're the corporal, you're a private, you're a private, and you're a private. Hey, can't we just go run and play? <laughs> now, I'm going to teach you how to salute, and we're going to walk and signal. So they did this military environment, kind of one cabin. Everybody else is just playing, having fun. He does this military environment, and he marches them to the dining hall in order, and I can't, if that sounds good to you, just know this wasn't a military camp, it was a church camp. I'm not saying there's not a place for that, it just wasn't there, right? And so we went through the summer with, with Bruce. Bruce was the counselor. And I couldn't coach him out of it and anything. So, so at the end of the summer, I was so glad when, I mean, I remember watching Bruce's car drive away. Bye, Bruce. You'll never be back, you know, um, if I'm back. Anyway, so... So Bruce drove away, and I thought, oh, thank goodness. We, Lori and I finished out some responsibilities. We went home. We, we saw our family. It was, it was, you know, fall, and we got to Thanksgiving, and I thank God that Bruce wasn't here anymore, and <laughs> we went on to Christmas. And a letter came to me in the mail from the camp that was forwarded to me from a psychiatrist. And I opened up the letter, and it was about one of the kids at camp that summer. Now, don't get ahead of me because I know you're going to, all right? And this kid came with all kinds of psychological problems. Right? I mean, all kinds of them. The, the psychiatrist said, you know, let's try mainstreaming. Let's see what camp to do. And he was a Christian. Let's see what Christ can do at camp. And when the kid got back, he had two sessions with that psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist was writing us to say that he doesn't need any more psychiatric care. That this kid found Christ and found his life again. And I don't know, like, how did that happen, right? But I'm going, wow, this is so awesome. Who was this counselor? Yeah, I go and I look it up, and sure enough, it's Bruce. <laughs> and I'm going, and at that moment, I had incredible clarity. God chooses the person I wouldn't have. God chooses the weak, the not-so-skilled, the one that I think, 
God, what are you, how can this person, all those things that I was thinking, I mean, I just remember, oh, I'm just drained of all this pride, and Bruce, way to go. I'm never going to hire you again, but way to go. (laughs) When God picks the weak, it always gives clarity, and here's the clarity that it gives. God doesn't need me. He doesn't need me. When I come to God and say, hey, God, I'm going to do this for you, and I'm working hard at that for you, and I'm going to do these things, and God's going, well, that's really great, Doug. Love to have you on board. But I don't need you. I'm going to use you, but don't make the mistake that I need you. God is not weaker or stronger with me or without me. And by the way, there's part of me that goes, ah, Ah, I, I kind of want him to need me. I like being needed. I like, I like being indispensable. Don't you? I mean, at some level, don't you want somebody to think you're indispensable? And I want God to go, you know, Doug, without you, we could never do this thing. My whole plans would be weaker without you, Doug. You know, and, but when he picks the weak, when he, hey, do you remember Bruce? Yeah, you don't need me. That's, that's what, it just provides incredible clarity that God's plans and what God is doing is not dependent on any one of us. He is going to use us. He created us to be used. We get to be a part of it, but it is a privilege, not a requirement for God to get it done. By the way, don't you want a God like that? How would you like to have a God who needs you? I'm so needy for you. Without you, I'll never get it done. Who wants that God? I want a God that stands up and says, Doug, I created you. You are a masterpiece. It says that in the Bible. You're created for good works in Christ, for good things to happen. I'm going to use you, but I don't make the mistake. You're not indispensable. I don't need you. I'm not weak. I'm not needy. Not only does it provide clarity, but when God picks the weak, it provides opportunity. Right? God picks the weak because it gives great opportunity for what? For others to discover faith. It's like this exclamation point on what, what, what God is doing. Now, let me take you to Acts chapter 4, but before we get to it, let me just kind of remind you of what happens before that. Jesus had his ministry. He was crucified. He was dead, 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 dead. He came back to life three days later. He worked with the disciples for 40 days while he was on earth. He appeared to more than 500 people. And then he told the disciples, wait for the Holy Spirit. They waited for the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit came. Peter, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, empowered of the Holy Spirit, you know, he was one of the least of these. He speaks up and thousands of people become Christians. And one day the church has this big, huge start. That's chap- at, uh, Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 3, it talks about Peter and John, two of these fishermen who are now <laughs> responsible to tell the truth, right? They are on their way into the temple and there's a, a crippled person. And they look at the crippled person and he's begging for money. That's how he's going to survive. And they go, well, we don't have any money. I know some of you have the song going through your head right now. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee, right? We were saying that in Sunday school. And they gave him, they said, uh, and they healed him. And they said, by the power of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, stand up and walk. And, and the crippled gets up and he starts leaping and hopping and praising God, right? And he, he, who wouldn't? So he's all happy. And then the leaders... The, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, if those words don't make a lot of sense, just think leaders, of, and, the, and, and the people in the high court who put Jesus to death are kind of going, whoa, 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 what happened here? And so they drag Peter and John before the council in Acts chapter 4 
for healing a crippled man, they're bringing them into inquisition. They're going to ask him all these questions because they don't want all this excitement. They don't want it rising up again. They put Jesus down. He's done. Let's move on now. Get back to normal. So Peter and John are before the council, and here's the conversation. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and elders of our people. He's talking to the very top. Are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Doesn't that seem a little weird? You're dragging us in like we're criminals. When Are we being questioned because we did a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus the Nazarene. Notice he didn't say, well, we did that. No, it's kind of like a David moment. Well, God is doing it. He was healed by Jesus, the Nazarene, the man you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. By the way, isn't that a um, politically nice speech to make? I mean, isn't he diplomatic there? No. He's t- you murdered him. That's the guy that, this is how it took place. This was serious guts. These guys who, remember Peter denying Jesus because he was afraid? And now he's standing up in front of the council. And he's not just like, hey, Jesus healed him, and you guys killed Jesus. Just a reminder. The members of the council were amazed. They were amazed when they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Why? Because where were they the night that Jesus died? They, they ran away. They denied. They hid. But now they're bold. For they could see they were ordinary men with no special training in the scriptures. So what were they? They were weak and untrained and not strong. And they also recognized them as the men who had been with Jesus. They knew that what they were saying was true. And here's this lame guy now walking around, like not hurt at all. And Peter just told him it was because of Jesus. That moment, they, they saw what happened, what God did. They saw the people that God used. They even made a point of it. These are ordinary people. They're not even trained They don't even understand the scriptures. For those guys, that was their best chance. Why did they have that meeting? Do you think I just want to make a point of it and and now the the persecution starts? I don't think so. I think around that council, and we don't know what happened, maybe some of them turned to faith. We don't know each of their stories. This Bible doesn't tell us all the details. But I'm telling you, it was their best chance because now they could go, i got to check this out. i got to discover what's going on here. God picked the weak. These ordinary fishing people, these common men, these small-town boys. And look at the power they have. Wouldn't you want to check that out? So there's some moments that happen at church that are, I think this is somebody's best chance, right? So one of the moments I love is I love when, and some of you, by the way, you used to live a different kind of life back in high school maybe or college or something. But especially if you're from this area, sometimes when you, you come to church and someone whom you haven't seen for a long time comes to church on the same day and you know each other, but not from church. <laughs> not from Bible studies. Not from praying together in a small group. You know each other. And you see each other, Bob, Tim, it's great to see you. Hey, Bob, can I just tell you the truth? Yeah, go ahead. I can't believe you're in church. I never, this is the last place I ever thought I would see you. And you know what the other guy always says? Yeah, that's what I was thinking about you. <laughs> right? And, and they come together and there's this 
there's this great moment of look what God has done. He, he picked us and we were we weren't being trained. We weren't dedicated. We weren't honoring God. And he's, he's picked us. And I'm going to tell you, those moments are so good because you need to capitalize on them because there's other people still out there. And seeing your faith and your friend's faith, and it has a very, very powerful effect. It's a great opportunity when you go, yep, we were screw-ups. I remember, you know, not everything, but I remember. And... <laughs> God chose us, right? So, by the way, I, I, I moved away from Duluth, right, from my high school. I don't have those moments all that <clears throat> often. But the summer, you know, I'm, I'm 58 now, so there's this thing <laughs> called a high school reunion. And I've never gone. Like, I mean, went to one little train ride thing, but it was just a few of us, right? So, I don't want to go. <laughs> I have to go, right? Because when I go there, there's going to be this moment, Doug, it's so good to see you. Yeah, you too. Remember all the What are you doing now? <laughs> I teach. God picks the weak. God picks the surprising. And, and you know, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm part of leading a church. And I do teach. And, um, and, and the story, what happened? How did it come out? I'm telling you, it's, it's going to be a great opportunity for me to, to have a chance to share. And I don't plan on preaching. I plan on just telling the truth and let's see what happens. I think God will use that. And I still don't want to go. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> everybody's crisis before a reunion, right? God uses our weaknesses to attract others rather than our strengths. When, when God uses weak things, everybody pays attention. When God uses somebody who's strong, we all go, oh, that person's really strong. That person's really smart. I wish I was strong and smart like them so God could use me. God goes, no, 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 no. It's me. I don't even need you. Of course I can use you. Of course I'll use you. There's so many wins in it. Why God picks the weak, it provides clarity. God doesn't need us. It provides opportunity. And the last one is he doesn't have much choice. <laughs> right? Now, and there's two reasons he doesn't have much choice. The first one is because of the nature of people who actually turn to God and say, please use me. Right? No one comes to God from a position of strength. If you're in a position of strength, you don't even care about God. You don't even know if God exists. You don't, who cares? I, I'm in control. I'm really smart. I'm really I'm good looking. I'm, I get, my life is coming my way. I don't, it's, it's um, no, you got to come to a point of weakness where you go, God, I need you. Nobody comes to God out of strength. We talked about this when we were in the Beatitudes together. God blesses those who are poor, right, in poverty, and realize their need. Lots of different kinds of poverty. It could be a poverty of strength or financial or social skills, whatever it is, when you go, I am hurting, I am weak, I am poor, and you connect it to, I need God. That's when people realize their need for him. And the kingdom, Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is theirs because they turn to God. God, I need you. I don't want to do life without you. I want the forgiveness. I need that. But as much as that, I need you. And I need hope. And I need a future. 
Some people on the, and, and the end of their, you know, their rope, I'm not, I don't know if I can live another day without you. Extreme poverty. Others of us find it at more shallow levels of poverty. And what I notice is younger people, I, I figured this out in high school, younger, when I was in high school, I saw people who became Christians, and I had a joke that only awkwardly, awkward people became Christians. Only nerds became Christians. Only people without social skills became Christians. Why was that? Well, those were the people who were becoming Christians. That they were, they were very awkward and, and not at the top of the social strata in high school. I mean, but there's a very clear strata in high school, right? And, and um, I pictured myself higher up than those people, which wasn't true, but it's nice to picture yourself somewhere like that, right? And, and nerds and awkward people become Christians. Why is that? Because in the economy of high school, they were poor and they knew it. And their poverty, because they were aware of it, led them to the idea of I need God before I got there. God had to show me my poverty. God had to bring me to a point where he goes, Doug, who do you think you are? Where's all this arrogance and pride coming from? You are as poor as anyone. God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him, for the kingdom of, of God is there. So let's flip it over. Where, does, where do strength and smarts lead us? Right? If you're really strong and really smart, really talented, where, what's the danger? Where does it lead you? Pride. And being in a prideful place is the most difficult place to find God. This is why God has taken stands. He goes, you know, I ruin the plans of the pride, proud. It's not because he hates the proud. He hates pride. He doesn't hate the proud. Right? It's not that he wants to ruin their plans. He wants them to turn to him, and they can't as long as they're trapped in the illusion that they don't need him. That they're, they're all that in a bag of chips. They're good to go. Right? Why God picks the weeks is because it provides clarity and provides opportunity, and he doesn't have much choice because the people who are saying, God, I'm here for you. I'll do whatever you want me to do are, are people who go, I need you, and have a, they've discovered humility, and they've discovered their own weakness. Strength and smart and looks and talents are all relative. This is the second reason why he doesn't have much choice. It's because these attributes are relative. They're only found by comparison, right? So if you come to me and go, hey, Doug, I hear you golf. Are you any good? Right? The answer is it depends who I'm golfing with. <laughs> if it's a first-time golfer, I'm great. <laughs> if it's Tiger Woods, I'm terrible, right? And Tiger and I don't go out much anymore. And, um, <laughs> right, but this is, if the hole was that big, I'd be a lot better, by the way. Um, but are you good at golf? Well, depends who, compared to whom, right? And if you ask me, are you getting better at it? I can point to, I remember starting, I remember the struggle, and yeah, I'm better now, but I'm a terrible golfer, and I'm an incredible golfer, just depending on who I'm golfing with. Um, how about how smart you are? How do we measure that? We have you take a test, and we compare it to other people's tests. And it's not about how smart you are. It's about how smart everybody else is compared to you, right? So, so some of us got lots of smiley faces in our papers growing up and, and, our, and our tests. We got great scores and big A pluses all the time, and others of us didn't. And the problem is, you know, in our lives, there's a danger in getting nothing but smiley faces on your tests and trophies in your bookcase. Now, let me be very clear about this because someone had confusion last night. I am not saying 
you shouldn't do well in life and get smiley faces and trophies. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that if you get those, if those come your way, there's a danger, and the danger is pride. The danger is, look at me, compared to everybody else. Look at me. I'm one of the smarter people. I'm one of the good-looking people. I'm one of the talented people. God must especially need me if you're, you know, the church person. But it is a very difficult place to find God. Compared to each other, if we do this, there are some absolute geniuses in this room, right? And there's some almost geniuses in this room. And there's some, some of us are not even close to being genius. We've had to kind of work through that. If we, if we compare to each other about strength, there's some people who are absolutely strong and some people who are almost strong. And then there's not even close to strong in, in, in the room. It's all about perspective and relative to each other, but we have no absolute measurement for any of it. Right? So when we say we're weak, well, compared to whom? Right? So this is about God's perspective. From our perspective, we compare to each other. Who does God compare your strength to? Who does God compare your, your wisdom to? Doesn't he have a bigger, higher standard, a bigger view than we would do? What is, what is God's perspective on these things? And I thought, I don't know how to tell you that. I mean, he, he says in the Scripture, goes, my ways are not your ways. My thoughts are above your thoughts like the sky and the earth. What he's kind of saying is, you think you're smart and you think you're strong and you think you understand things, any of us? You don't have my perspective. So I found this clip. Years and years ago. I love this clip. I haven't had a chance to use it for a long time. It's from Men in Black at the very end. And it, it, the only point of it is, forget about Men in Black, perspective. Watch this. Clarity. I'm not saying God is a giant alien <laughs> playing marbles with the universe. I'm not saying that uh, at all. But I will say this. He could. He could. Can you <laughs> take the alien part out? That's the perspective of God. He sees it all. Uh, he sees each of us. We're just a speck. Just a speck. And God sees us and cares about us and we're bragging about our trophies and our test results and how much money we make and how we are physically. Our strength when we're born, absolutely weak, and when we die, it'll be weak again. And in the middle, we find bragging rights. Are you kidding me? See, there's just no room for arrogance. <laughs> Believe me, I've, I've had to, I'm working at it. I don't want arrogance. It's part of... It's part of my family heritage to have some arrogance, right? Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction. This is God warning us and haughtiness before a fall. Right? You've got to fall, otherwise you'll never find humility. Isaiah 2, 11, human pride will be brought down and human arrogance will be humbled, all of it. Only the Lord will be exalted in the day, day of judgment. That's not because God goes, and it's time for me to exalt and Lord over you. No, and he can't help it. He's 
God. And we're living in a marble from his perspective. Why does God pick the weak? It provides clarity. It provides opportunity. And he doesn't have any choice. Even the strongest of us are weak. We were born that way, and we will die that way. And in between, from God's perspective, we don't get all that much stronger. And yet God says, you. I pick you. I pick you. So if you're feeling weak, let me encourage you with what Isaiah says. Have you never heard? Have you never understood? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of all the earth. That's all they knew, of everything. He never grows weak or weary. No one can measure the depths of his understanding. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless if they want it, if they'll seek it. Even youth will become weak and tired eventually. Young men will fall in exhaustion, but those who trust in the Lord will find new strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. He gives power to the weak and strength to the powerless. That doesn't mean you're going to be able to run marathons tomorrow. It means God is with you. He'll strengthen you for each day of your life. And each moment that you need, if you turn to him, if you seek him, this is just like God to choose the weak. So if you're feeling weak, seek God. You, that's the poverty you need to say, God, I know you don't need me, but I need you. And if you're feeling strong, maybe, maybe you're getting a new perspective today. Maybe there's a time where you just lay it down and go, God, I, sometimes I think you need me and I'm so wrong. And when you realize that, you're in the best place to serve him. You're in the best place to be used by God because he doesn't need your trophies or my trophies, and he doesn't need my good test results, and he doesn't need my smarts, and he doesn't need my talent, but he does want to leverage the gifts and abilities he's given me, and he wants to use you. I'm going to close the service. I'm going to pray afterwards, but I'm going to show you a video that's on a very similar theme to some of the things we've said this morning. It's very short. Watch this. stand together.
Let's pray. God, each of us comes to, uh, before you and we have our own sense of why we count and why we're important. And sometimes maybe some of us are leaning into our trophies and test results. Will you show us what we need to know about ourselves? That we're significant, but we are weak. And we are chosen. And God, would you help us to step into what you've called each of us to do, whether it's a small thing or a big thing. And would you strengthen us with that same courage-giving Holy Spirit that the disciples had so we can walk with you, so we can say the words that we need to say at the right times in the right places, even if it's a high school reunion or at work or at school or in our neighborhoods. Help us to live well and love well. Give us clarity and courage and self-awareness. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, so five minutes from now, we'll be having that annual meeting in here. In the meantime, enjoy yourselves.